You're now listening to episode 71 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hole and Thomas Castelli here today with Kevin Caiaccio and Shay Chancellor of Caiaccio Law Firm, who specializes in commercial real estate law. In this episode, we discuss a variety of legal topics related to real estate syndication, including entity structuring, legal issues when acquiring and disposing properties, what tax strategies they see their client using, and much more. Before we jump right into today's episode, I want to let everybody know that the Real Estate CPA will be putting on special virtual workshops in October, November, and December of this year, where we will discuss year-end tax tips for the first 15 to 20 minutes and then open up the room for questions. This is the perfect opportunity to get answers to your last-minute tax questions before the year ends. Seats will be limited, and you can sign up by visiting www.therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual-workshops or by following the link in the show notes below. Trey and Kevin, thanks for coming on the show today. Can you give our listeners a brief overview of your background? Uh, let's, let's get started with, uh, with Kevin, then we can go with Trey. Yeah, sounds good. First of all, guys, thanks for having us. So for my background, I was born in Atlanta, uh, attended University of Georgia Law School, and ever since graduating, I've been in private practice exclusively in the area of commercial real estate. I worked for about 11 years at uh, some mid-sized Atlanta firms. And then in 2006, went out on my own and started Caiaccio Law Firm. So it's been 13 years doing that, and it's definitely been some interesting times. Uh, you know, caught the end of the last real estate cycle and saw some of the flip side of the market during the recession. Uh, but ever since coming out of the last downturn, we've been, we've been growing and, and doing strong and been very fortunate to grow alongside some longstanding clients who've done very well and, and continue to do well in this cycle. So I've been practicing exclusively in commercial real estate now for almost 25 years and thoroughly enjoy it. I wouldn't uh, be doing it if I didn't love it. That's yes. And uh, I'm Trey Chancellor. I'm an attorney in the office as well at Kayaksha Law Firm. I'm also as well from Atlanta. Grew up in Atlanta. Uh, the family business is real estate. So I um, grew up doing real estate and I came out of undergraduate school at Auburn and went to CBRE and did some brokerage work for a little while. Realized that really wasn't my thing. Went back to law school, came out, did the litigation track for a couple of years, um, a, a big international firm in the Atlanta area, and realized that maybe real estate was still my first love. So I came back over to work, uh, joined Kevin a few years ago, and have been practicing with him, just building the practice, and have really enjoyed the move from kind of the big law to a boutique firm. It's allowed us to really know our clients and grow with our clients and get to know them on a more than just a professional level. So it's been a great move for me. I enjoy doing it. Uh, this is what we do. And we're, I think Kevin and I both would say we're fortunate enough to wake up every morning and enjoy what we do. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And I know you work with commercial clients you had mentioned. Uh, could you dive a little bit deeper into who you work with and how exactly uh, you work with them, how you help them? Sure, sure. So we are, as Trey mentioned, a boutique law firm, which means that we're highly concentrated in our practice area. All that we do is commercial real estate transactions and the corporate work that goes along with it. 
And I think that's important in today's legal market, given the complexity of the law, to stay within our area of expertise and don't try to be full service. Our clients primarily are mid-sized private equity firms, uh, deal sponsors, syndicators, and we do work with some private lenders. We uh, work with a lot of uh, established firms and institutions and also work with some young entrepreneurs and real estate startups. And we really enjoy the variety and like being trying to become a part of a client's team as they grow. Within our practice area, we handle all aspects of uh, commercial real estate transactions uh, start to finish. So just a typical example of the kind of deal we'll work on would be an acquisition, really could be any kind of commercial real estate, but mostly multifamily. That's really our strong suit. A lot of multifamily. We do have uh, some experience with self-storage, hotels, and also have some developer clients. We generally first get involved in a new deal with negotiation of the purchase and sale agreement. We have a, a lot of experience with this and really know the ins and outs of a contract and know what market terms are. And that's really critical to have a, an experienced attorney start by reviewing the PSA. This essentially is the rule book for, for your transaction going forward. After the PSA is signed, we'll quarterback the legal due diligence, which involves title and survey review, a verified zoning compliance, et cetera. Uh, while we're doing our due diligence and the client is doing their own uh, lease audits and physical due diligence, uh, we work with the client to fill the capital stack. In any real estate deal, you're going to need uh, X amount of dollars to close and for closing costs, et cetera. Uh, almost always there's a debt aspect to it, you know, somewhere in the 70% range. So we work with the lenders, negotiate term sheets and loan documents, issue legal opinions, all that kind of good stuff. Because of our experience in multifamily, we know the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac lenders uh, very well, the lenders and their counsel. So that's helpful to be able to negotiate that process. We have, like I said, a lot of experience with that. Of course, the debt is only going to be part of the capital stack. There's always going to be an equity component. Sometimes that might be institutional equity, in which case we'll negotiate uh, joint venture agreements. But whether or not there's institutional uh, a JV, there'll be some form of equity raise, which more often than not, is some sort of retail raise involving high net worth individuals. In that case, it might be a Reg D offering and a PPM, and we handle all aspects of that. Sometimes there might be a mezzanine debt, a second mortgage, or even seller financing, or, or a lot of times, too, just a simple partnership. If you have just a handful of, of, of people involved who are each contributing equal amounts of know-how and capital, then we'll do uh, operating agreements for that sort of partnership. From there, we handle it right through the closing. Our goal always to, is to have smooth and timely closings, and a part of doing that is being able to anticipate the issues before they arise and coordinating with all the clients' counterparties, sellers' attorneys, lenders' attorneys, brokers, et cetera, to all work towards a, a smooth closing. In addition to acquisitions, we handle uh, refinances and dispositions. Always the key when selling assets is to get paid the proceeds and retain as few liabilities as possible. As he's aware is, is still very much the norm in commercial real estate, but there's always negotiation around the edges. So on sales, that's, we spend a lot of our time uh, negotiating those sort of terms. I think another advantage to our firm is we're not limited geographically. We've handled transactions in the majority of, of U.S. states. Now, we typically don't have to be licensed in a state to do a real estate closing there, but if local expertise is needed, then we have key partners in those states. But having that national reach allows our clients to have one point of contact regardless of the deal location. So if you happen to have a deal that crosses over state lines, uh, you don't have to find a new attorney in each state. Uh, likely we'll have experience there. 
And lastly, we have a uh, in-house title insurance agency. We're one of the top commercial agents for Old Republic. So when appropriate, we'll also provide escrow services, uh, which is particularly helpful in the refinances. So in a nutshell, that's uh, that's what we do. Awesome. Thanks for all that. Yeah, so we are, we're 100% virtual too, so it definitely resonates with being able to work with anybody anywhere. Uh, it's definitely powerful, and it also allows you to just even more, at least in our experience, even more so niche in because you can work with anybody, meaning that you can kind of scale a niche practice a little bit more effectively, a little bit faster at higher profit margins, which ultimately allows you to build a much better expertise and uh, provide a much better service to the clients that you're servicing at the end of the day. So definitely resonate with that. But at what point should a sponsor, like a general partner of a syndication, at what point should they be looping you guys into a potential deal? Is it in the planning stages after they have a property under contract? Where where should, where in that, uh, I'm assuming it's in that due diligence phase up front early, but where should they be thinking about getting a legal team on board? Well, I think Kevin kind of touched on it briefly um, with the need for the purchase and sale agreements. I would say as all attorneys, what it depends, but what it really depends on is when your earnest money is going hard on a deal. You know, in today's market, it's a very seller-friendly market right now. A lot of these sellers are asking for earnest money to go hard day one. So if that's the case, I would say bring us in once you feel comfortable that you may have a deal so that we can help maybe draft the early access agreement so you can get out to the property early before you put your money down, or we can do a title and survey review and our due diligence on the front end. If the earnest money is not going hard and you're getting a kind of quote-unquote free look, I would say the best time to bring us in is right after you sign the letter of intent and just uh, to bring us in at that point. Because, you know, as Kevin said, these purchase and sale agreements are heavily negotiated and just, again, that's our area of expertise, which we really focus on. So we're very familiar with what market terms are, what are conditions, and kind of what to look for. It's kind of a game of ins and outs in these contracts. You know, if you're buying, you're trying to find it out if you need one. And if you're selling, you're trying to make sure they're trapped in. So it's just figuring that out. And I think that's something that you really want to have us come in and help you kind of hammer out to make sure that you're in the best position down the road to kind of minimize your liability and maximize your opportunity. I would say as a general rule, the sooner the better, but the clients do need to be cognizant of dead deal costs, right? You don't want to get into a deal, run up a legal bill, and then find out it doesn't pencil out the way you expect and have to terminate. So that's the one kind of offsetting factor that you need to be concerned about is, is running up those costs when you're not sure a deal is going to go forward. Got it. What type of entity structure do you guys normally put in play for these syndication deals? Yeah, it's a little, it's kind of a tricky question because it's certainly not one size fits all when it comes to real estate real estate syndications. Every structure has some nuances and, and unique qualities. But with that said, there certainly are some common characteristics uh, that we see. First, uh, we deal almost exclusively with LLCs and often several different layers of LLCs. And, and that's one thing we should be clear on is that a lot of times in vernacular, we talk about partners and GPs and LPs, but more often than not, you'll see in the legal documents, we're, we're talking about LLCs, which means managers and members or classes of members. Within the structure of the ownership, uh, there'll be a property-owning entity, or if it's a portfolio of assets, sometimes you'll have multiple property-owning entities. There'll be a GP manager entity, and then the investors will either be members directly in the property owner, or sometimes they'll be in, in a parent entity or a separate member entity. The fees and promote that are generated at the property owner tier will then be paid to the GP entity, which gives you the flexibility to split those among the GP group if, if that's appropriate. 
In terms of a distribution waterfall, what we most commonly see is a preferred return somewhere in the 8 to 12% range in these kind of deals, which is you know, sort of akin to paying interest on the capital contributions. Once the PREP is paid current, then you get into the carried interest where the GP group would receive a larger percentage of the distributions. And then from there, sometimes we'll see IRR hurdles where, you know, for example, if the IRR then exceeds a threshold of maybe 15%, the carried interest becomes larger. Again, that's sort of all over the board, but that's pretty typical. When it comes to decision-making in most syndications, the GP group will typically have very much strongly be in control. LPs have very limited voting rights. Now, the exception to that would be if you have an institutional JV partner, in which case, to some degree, that gets flipped on its head. But generally, in a syndication, the GP group is very much in control of the deal. Another consideration in the structure is going to be your debt source, because lenders will have certain restrictions and covenants on ownership structure, sometimes uh, transfer restrictions. Uh, So the source of debt is also a consideration when you're structuring your equity. I was just going to add along those lines, another kind of problem with the source of debt and making sure you're uh, kind of connecting with your equity is, you know, if you have certain kind of bigger investors coming in, making a bigger contribution over a certain percentage, that'll trigger certain underwriting standards. So understanding where your equity is and who your equity is is important as you're working through the debt component of it all. So kind of where we come in as we allow to facilitate, make sure there are no issues and try and catch it if there is, if you're going to have a single equity investment that's going to come in as a, say, 25%. Now, that's going to trigger kind of agency requirements that that person be underwritten at that point. Yeah, there's always a degree of interplay between the debt and, and how the equity structure. Got it. Is there a reason that the general partners should come in with their own LLC? Uh, you mentioned like setting them up with like a management LLC. Is there a reason that you do that rather than just let them take a stake of the property LLC? Really two reasons. One is to segregate liability, right? If you're doing a lot of these deals, there is a certain liability that goes along with being a manager entity. So you want to segregate those deal to deal. Uh, that would be one reason. And then another reason, there, there's typically some sort of splitting of the uh, of the fees and promotes that go to the general partner. It'll be a general partner group, and that gives you the flexibility to do that within an entity. And you can sort of do that a little bit more behind the scenes, so to speak, by having that separate GP entity. Got it. Okay. And so since we're kind of on the topic of entity structuring, to sort of build on top of that, if a syndicator or if a sponsor is sourcing capital and there's a there's a capital group that comes in and they say, I can raise X amount of capital and I want Y stake in your LLC, we've seen some things pop up over the past couple of years about brokerage requirements and securities laws and all that. At what point does the sponsor need to say, whoa, I can't just give you a stake for accepting capital or is that okay? Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, you know, that's something we have seen even in our practice some more recently is kind of this idea of a co-GP um, structure from the manager side or two managers. So they're going to come in and raise their equity. And it's fine as long as we're comfortable with that, as long as the two quote-unquote sponsors or GPs or co-GPs are out there. And when you disclose your investment, you're disclosing the investment on the private placement memorandum out front as far as who is all involved in the transaction. What we have seen a little bit of, and we don't really recommend at this point, is this kind of concept of sub-raisers or sub-advisors coming underneath the GPs or the sponsors that are raising funds, and then these GPs are giving them a percentage of the deal on the GP side after the fact, depending on what they raise. And oftentimes, that doesn't uh, comply with securities laws because they're not a registered broker. And 
we've seen it a little bit more and we understand the need to kind of pull the resources, but candidly, we've struggled to get comfortable with it from a security perspective. So just kind of to recap, we're okay if both of the sponsors are kind of disclosed and coming in and kind of co-GPing a deal together. But once you start adding the sub-layers with the sub-advisors or sub-raisers, at that point, in absent of major disclosure, we're, uh, we think you are running some risk, substantial risk. Makes sense. Makes sense. So I guess at the end of the day, you really just have to be true co-sponsors and, and not that much room for funny business going on beyond that. But what are some legal aspects that general partners of a syndication need to be aware of uh, when during the acquisition process of acquiring a property? I mean, first and foremost, you need to understand that you're taking someone else's money. And taking someone else's money, you've taken on certain fiduciary obligations and responsibilities. So with that aspect, you need, I mean, that's kind of the rule one start out from anything. So treat it as if your own money, obviously. But along those lines, even more importantly, you need to start disclosing everything, um, disclosing all the actions you plan to take, the risk involved with it, which a lot of times we can do through the documentations, through the subscription agreement and the private placement memorandum. But throughout the acquisition process, the key to it all would absolutely be the private placement memorandums and making sure you've made a full disclosure of all the risks involved in the deal. Because if nothing else, that's at least shifting the risk from the general partners to the limited partners because they've been informed and they're aware and the information's been disclosed and they've had an opportunity to still make the decision they made. So they made an informed decision. Um, so it shifts the risk. Yeah, disclosure is the key. Anytime you can take whatever risk you want with your own money, when you're taking risk with someone else's money, there is going to be a certain element of fiduciary obligations. Uh, so disclosure is the key. And that's where it comes in. The PPM is one tool for that. There's other ways to do it, but but that's always going to be the key. Got it. Got it. And when it comes to the transactional level of actually, you know, I guess getting to the closing table or, you know, dealing with the seller of the property during that acquisition process, is there anything that the GP needs to be aware of from that angle? You're specifically asking dealing with when dealing with the seller? Yes. There's the investor side of the things. Like we have to give all the disclosures, the PPMs and subscription agreements and all that. But then when you're turning to actually going and acquiring the property from the seller, so you're taking ownership of it. What are the things that general partners need to be aware of in that process? I think from the beginning, they need to understand the deal they underwrote and the under deal they bid on. And then I think they need to really make sure that even before they talk to the seller, they have their team in place, whether that be their property management group to help them do the due diligence, whether that be their legal team to help them draft the contract, whether that be their debt people to help them understand what kind of loan terms they're going to need to acquire the property and making sure you have the property before you start to kick kind of go out and kick the tires on it. As far as negotiating the contract, you obviously want to know that they're giving you clean title. I mean, that's the key to the whole transaction. But um, more importantly, you want to go through the reps and warranties the seller's making to make sure that he's giving you the representations that the books and records are accurate, that these are all the contracts involved with the property. So you have something to rely on as you go and do your due diligence and that you're not finding something after the fact. So that's a very key important is making sure you have your due diligence materials covered and what you're going to want from the seller, as well as understanding the representations and warranties you want the seller to provide to you on the front end. Yeah, it's very true. But as I said before, for the most part in commercial real estate, uh, acquisitions are as is. So it's incumbent on the buyer group to, to do their due diligence and try to try to uncover all the, any, any issues. Absolutely. Makes a ton of sense. So when you when you're looking at when uh, when say the general partnership, the management group, they're looking to dispose of the property. 
Is there any legal things or uh, aspects of that that they need to be aware of when they're getting ready to sell the property? Well, again, the key is um, selling the property without a lot of retained liabilities, right? And, and, and that is pretty typical. There should not be a whole lot of, in, in most commercial real estate transactions, should not be a whole lot of representations that survive for very long. Now, again, that's all negotiated. There are certain things that is appropriate for a seller to represent, particularly things that are not easy for the buyer to do diligence, such as books and records and financials. So there will be some retained liabilities. As the seller group, what you want to avoid is closing a deal, distributing all the funds to your investors, and then having to deal with the lawsuit, right? So a couple of things we do about that. Number one, there's, there should be a limitation on how long those liabilities survive post-closing so that the seller has a definite period where they know the liabilities have extinguished. Now, the other thing you need to do is just retain some funds in a reserve for those sort of issues or final accounting, bookkeeping, uh, that sort of thing. But very important, you want to sell and, and have a clean break. Yeah, just to add a little bit to that, I think, I know we do it here at uh, Cash Law Firm. We approach when we're buying as if we could sell the property. And so I think if you kind of take that mentality from the beginning, that when we close up a transaction for someone, we like to think that once the documents come back from recording a few days later, if they wanted to, they could turn around and sell the, sell the property because the title's right, the surveys are right, zoning, everything they've gotten is clean. So if you do it from the front end, and that's not really a legal guidance, just kind of business guidance, but if you cover it from the front end, it makes the back end sale a much easier process. So that's kind of our goal when we do the front end acquisitions for clients. Guy, I know we see that all the time too on our end. We see clients who maybe don't do it the right way the first time, and don't do it right right on the front end, and then it just leads to having to clean up a bunch of stuff on the back end or or during right. the management of the transaction, and it just becomes a nightmare. So, hundred percent agree, couldn't agree more. Uh, get it done right the first time on the front end. So, just kind of shifting gears a little bit. If you're a limited partner, say uh, I'm looking to invest in a deal, perhaps for a GP. What should I be aware of? What should the limited partners be aware of when looking at that operating agreement or the PPMs or subscription agreements? Um, you know, first and foremost, understand the basic deal terms, which are in a private place of memorandum and in the operating agreement. Understand the fees that are being paid out to the syndicator or the GP and make sure you're comfortable with them and that they're market. Understand who the syndicator or the general partner is. I mean, it sounds so simple and common, but you'd be surprised. Understand who you're giving your money to. Know who you feel comfortable with who you're providing this money to as far as the syndication. I mean, as a limited partner, you have very little say in this deal. You're very passive. I mean, it's a passive investor for that reason. So before you commit your capital, I would say it's very important to understand the basic deal terms from both the fees being paid out to the sponsor to the way you're going to be paid or compensated for the equity you're going to be providing on its form as preferred return, Plus, how will the waterfall distributions go to the passive investors or the LPs to versus the sponsor? Yeah, I think the, the most important aspect of a deal, and it's sort of an intangible, it's the character of the sponsors, right? I mean, I invest in passively in deals and people that I know, and I don't give it a second thought, really, because it's it's a, such a level of trust. Because like Trey said, the LPs do not have a lot of rights. You got to have a great deal of trust in the person who's running the deal. One other kind of more specific thing is understanding the tax aspects of it as a passive investor, how the allocations are, are going to affect you, and, and uh, just having a good tax advisor to let you know what you're getting into from that standpoint, given the passive loss rule. Excellent. Thank you very much. So since we are an accounting and tax podcast, we do want to <laughs> shift gears a little bit and talk about some taxes and tax advisors. I guess the first question to you, we talked about 
when you guys should get involved, when the attorney should get involved, but when should the general partners be looking to rope in a CPA? Or when do you guys tell the general partners it's time for you to go get a CPA to review all of this? I think ideally a good team, a real estate team would have a CPA as part of their team. Uh, they'd be one of the team players, kind of the players on the team. So my kind of general thought is when you're putting together a deal, you want to understand the structure of the deal. And there's a lot that goes into these tax issues and how it's done that I would recommend having a CPA come in from the outset as you're laying out the org chart and understanding how you want to structure your deal. Because understanding your tax implications from the outset, like we kind of discussed earlier, really helps avoid a lot of cleanup work on the back end. Well, one thing I can tell you, it's a little bit of a dirty secret, but there's a lot of attorneys out there who are drafting these operating agreements that do not fully understand the tax allocations. So I, I think it's it's very helpful if you have an accountant to look at that who understands the overall deal at the outset that can do that. I'd much rather have an accountant tell me while we're drafting an operating agreement, okay, I'd like for you to change the way you worded this, these allocations, as opposed to they're filing the first tax return after the deal's closed and they come back and they say, wait a minute, you know, this allocation is not really what everybody wanted. So that is really a key component. I think the rest of operating agreements, most attorneys are, are pretty good at, but that's the one element where it really helps to have a tax expert look at it, ideally in advance, like I said. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you said that. It's funny because we, so we work with a lot of syndicates and funds and it's probably once every month or once every other month, a syndicate will come to us with an operating agreement, exactly like you said, drafted by an attorney who's probably a great attorney, but just not understanding the tax implications or not looping in a CPA during the drafting of the operating agreement. And sometimes we'll see unintentional capital shifts from the LP to the GP. And I always try to calm people down and say, well, the good news is that the LP probably doesn't want to shift capital to you for not doing anything. So, so we should be able to get this amended. But yeah, let's make sure that, that, that you get a CPA looped in next time so we don't have to worry about it. Like, like many things, it's easier to get it right the first time than it is to go back and, and fix it after the fact, right? Well, no, you don't want to have to go back to your investors. Yep, yep, absolutely. So what are some of the hard-hitting tax strategies that you see your clients use? Or you, you said you guys were investing as well. What are some of the strategies that you, or some tax strategies, I should say, that you look for to mitigate taxes for the LP? One thing that I've seen is when you have a situation where the GP is going to receive certain fees, such as an acquisition fee or a loan guarantee fee, if the uh, equity investor doesn't want that necessarily paid right up front and there's a deferral of it, that can be structured in the operating agreement as a profits interest. If that is done properly, then that profits interest, again, there's a deferral and it's money at risk because it typically would have to be paid after return of capital. But if that's structured properly, the fee would be paid and the uh, GP would receive a capital long-term capital gains treatment on that as opposed to ordinary income. That's one thing I've, I've seen from time to time. Uh, another thing, and I know you guys have talked about this a lot on your prior podcast, is the cost segregation studies. Uh, whether or not they do that, there's going to be some depreciation deductions generated by these. Want to make sure those get to the right place, which primarily benefit the uh, general partners, but also can have some benefit to the limited partners as well. That's a couple that come to mind. And, yeah, just you know, to add along to that, I think another one we see sometimes is kind of how the clients want to allocate a purchase price between real property and personal property. And what that allows you to do is to kind of, if you reduce the amount you allocate on the real property, lower your cost basis going forward, years forward after you've acquired the property. He's referring to, to the, the property taxes. That I'm sorry, paid, excuse me. Yeah, paid paid here. So, yeah, property taxes on when you acquire a property. Let me, I'm sorry, I apologize. 
when you buy a property, the property taxes are annually. One way to kind of reduce those going forward is if on the front end of it, you kind of allocate purchase price between the real property and the personal property at that point, which will allow you kind of a lower basis to get taxed on. Well, most of our clients, just as an ordinary course of business, are contesting their property taxes yeah. each year, obviously, because property taxes are a large expense in these deals. So using the strategy he just mentioned, you start from a lower number, yeah. and these property tax consultants uh, that work with our clients, uh, they really encourage this. It helps their job, and, and that's if uh, there's folks out there that are not contesting their property taxes, it's something to consider. These firms out there that do it will oftentimes do it on a contingency basis. Yeah. So this strategy of allocating the purchase price at acquisition helps those uh, property tax consultants. You're basically saying to do a costing study, uh, essentially pre-purchase. That way, you come in with a lower building basis. That is that is that a good summary? Yeah, that'd be one way to kind of view it. But yeah, we're just kind of bifurcating out between the real property and the personal property. We're just dividing it out. So actually, to do what Trey mentioned, it doesn't have to be a full-blown cost segregation study, but it's pretty similar in that it's an appraisal that would allocate between the personal property and the real property. And, and I should also mention that those rules are going to vary by jurisdiction, right? How that's reported to the tax assessor. Yeah, that's a kind of state-by-state, state. so we do see it in certain states. The other one we'd kind of have to mention would be 1031 exchanges. I mean, we that's a real estate attorney's best friend because there's more transactions going on, but it also allows you to defer to having to pay taxes today to roll it into the next property or purchase the property. There's some certain things to kind of be aware of with the 1031 just making sure that the market's right when you go out and identify the three properties and make sure that you have a pretty good feel of your ability to go kind of replace the property. Um, there is no harm if you don't, but it just kind of saves some unnecessary brain uh, hair pulling. And then the last thing would be the carried interest uh, rule has changed recently, allowing for it's now three years for GPs. And it's one year for limited partners or passive investors. Well, on the carried interest, right? There's a three-year hold period for the long-term capital. It used to be previously a two-year hold period, which now has been increased to a three-year hold period. Yeah, definitely something to be aware of on the when selling assets, uh, particularly because those carried interests can have a lot of value in this market. Absolutely. No, 100% agree on the carried interest side. Definitely need to be aware of the new law. But I just kind of want to go back to one thing you said in there, and I think if I was understanding correctly, you're saying that some of your some of the investors you see they're actually going to get the property tax evaluated by a firm to get the actual property tax say that's assessed by the county or by the the local jurisdiction in the area where the investment is actually taking place. Is that accurate? Well, not the investor, but the but the, whoever's running the deal after closing. The way it works in Georgia, where we do a lot of our deals. In the spring of the year, there'll be a proposed assessment that comes out, and there's a period of time after that when the owner can file for an appeal. And then there's an appeal process, and the clients are often very successful in getting that assessed value lowered and consequently paying a lower property tax bill for that year. Absolutely. One of the things that, that I know from the investor side is whenever you purchase a property, one of the line items on the, on the pro forma you have to watch out for is the tax because it could be assessed at a higher rate. And usually those expenses are pretty substantial. So if you can get that lowered and get it assessed at a lower rate, it's probably worth it all day long to do that. Absolutely. It has a big effect on your NOI. Absolutely. So the question we ask all of our guests is, uh, what is the favorite piece of technology that you're currently using in your business, either on the investment side or, or, or is on the, the law side? For me, number one would be DocuSign. It allows for secure remote execution of documents, even by cell phone. 
Uh, since most of our clients aren't sitting at a desk all day long, it makes our job a lot easier to get contracts signed. Uh, this technology is not new. It's been around for a while, but I think it's just now becoming more widely accepted. Uh, occasionally, we'll get pushback from other attorneys on executing documents that way, but I think that's becoming less and less. It's, it's pretty widely accepted. Now, there are some limitations on that. You can't sign promissory notes, guarantees, or deeds where you actually need original documents that way. But contract amendments or uh, third-party work orders, that sort of thing, very, very convenient way to get documents executed uh, is through DocuSign. Uh, another thing is uh, electronic filing of, uh, of deeds. It's a lot of the ways that real estate is still traded is very antiquated, right? You still need to print a deed, sign it in front of witnesses, uh, and then the original gets shipped to the, the deed room at the courthouse where the property is located, and they copy it and, and ship it back to us. A very outdated process. And as far as the requirements of execution, those are still pretty much the same. But slowly but surely, some of these counties are, are coming around to accepting deeds electronically, which, you know, again, makes our job a ton easier, saves us on FedExing the risk of deeds getting lost and, and just increases the, uh, or rather decreases the turnaround time of getting the documents recorded and back to us. So those, those are my two favorites. Yeah, I think without a doubt, DocuSign has been the biggest benefit to our practice as far as just having clients on the road, looking at different properties, but still have another deal going on to get them to be able to look at something and sign from their phone has been very helpful. Um, but another one you just have to read from our perspective is the cybersecurity going on in today's world of fraud with these real estate transactions. There's a lot of efforts by um, people to scam the wire instructions or the earnest money to try and swap them out and go through our emails and stuff like that. And this two-step security authentication has really reduced that risk when we've implemented it in our firm and uh, feel very good about it because we feel like it's really reduced the risk to kind of lose any of these wires as you commonly see in these legal journals. Real estate attorneys are definitely a target of these fraudsters. So any cybersecurity we're in favor of, we, we try to keep the most current. I have to agree with that. You know, I've heard from, I believe it was a client of ours who was actually involved in one of those situations where I forgot what side of the transaction they are and if they were the GP or they were the LP, but in any event, basically the wire information got swapped and there was someone stole the money on its way to the, to the ultimate, the ultimate user, the general partner. So definitely got to beef up that cybersecurity um, hundred percent. So just to wrap up for today, uh, you know, if our listeners wanted to get in contact with either of you or your company, what would be the best way for them to do so? Yeah, a couple things. In the show notes, we'll have a link where you can download our, our firm brochure, which is an electronic uh, brochure that tells you a little bit more about the firm and how to contact us. Uh, certainly, LinkedIn is another way. Trey and I are both, uh, both active on LinkedIn. Yeah. And we'd love to hear from some of your listeners, whether you're established real estate investors or a startup. We'd love to talk to you. Yeah. And then we'll also, I mean, we'll get our website out, but I'll give it out while we're on the podcast. It's www.clf-attorneys with an S on the end.com. And that's our main webpage, but we'll also put the um, firm brochure at the bottom of the show notes, a link to it. Absolutely. We'll, we'll have that in the show notes. Thank you guys again for coming on and really insightful information on on the syndication structures and what to be watching out for, whether you're a GP or LP in one of these transactions. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, we appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thank you so much. Hey everybody. Thank you for joining us for the Q and a segment of today's podcast episode. So we have our first question today from Darren and Darren asks, I love the idea of cross irrigation studies and bonus depreciation, but my CPA tells me that it won't be great for me for two reasons. 
First, I'm still under personal AMT, and it appears that accelerated depreciation is explicitly prohibited. Is there anything I could do to still take benefit? And second, there's depreciation recapture. As he explained, any depreciation in excess of straight line depreciation is considered ordinary income. Moving what would ordinarily be a capital gain to ordinary income is a huge negative. Can you speak to this and offer any strategies to help manage it? Yeah, so for the AMT piece, the CPA is exactly right, right? So if we're calculating AMT, we do have to add back bonus depreciation. Uh, After the 2018 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the AMT has become a lot friendlier. We have a lot higher exemptions and a lot higher phase-outs as well. So my only recommendation there would be to make your CPA do a calculation. I mean, I mean, get a get a scenario or two together and say, okay, you're saying that that I have to back out bonus depreciation for AMT purposes, which is totally true. Can can we apply some numbers here and can we see what the end result is actually going to be? Um, what we find is that a lot of tax professionals in the space will typically just say things like that and not actually apply the numbers. Not saying that the CPA hasn't done that, of course, but it's always good to just take that extra step and apply a few different scenarios to the situation to figure out, is this actually going to affect me the way that we think it's going to affect me? And it very well might. But that second question about the recapture. So again, also correct. Uh, any sort of recapture that's not straight line. You, we have we have two types of recapture. We have Section 1245 and Section 1250. They're both recaptured at different tax rates, meaning that we pay different tax rates, none of which are capital gain rates. So it doesn't matter if you buy a property and, and just depreciate it over 27 and a half years, that accumulated depreciation will still be subject to Section 1250 recapture, which is not capital gain tax rates. But the big thing here is time value of money. So if I'm taking 100% bonus depreciation today and it saves me $40,000 in taxes today, I can let that $40,000 grow over time versus not taking that today and just taking the straight line depreciation over the next however many years. The time value of money factor is what you really have to weigh here. Uh, Our experience, again, is that most CPAs don't weigh that. They just they advise you on the negatives rather than explaining the positives. In almost every scenario that we run, it makes a lot of sense to take that bonus depreciation, to take those tax savings, and to reinvest those tax savings because you you're running at a twelve percent rate. You can double your money in seven years. So as long as you're reinvesting those tax savings, now if you take the bonus depreciation, get the tax savings, go buy a boat, well, you know, shame on you, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, there's there's few scenarios where it doesn't make sense. One of the few scenarios where it doesn't make sense to take the 100% bonus depreciation might be if you're liquidating the property within two, three, or four years. Because in that case, we don't have enough time for those tax savings to really mature from a return perspective, right? So th- just some different considerations there for sure. All right, Tom, I've got one for you from Amanda. It looks like she's a real estate agent. She's asking, should she buy, should a new real estate agent buy a car and should she have a cash outlay or should she like get a loan payments lease? What do you think? I think that's definitely a multifaceted question. I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is, do you need a new car? Um, you generally don't want to do make any moves strictly for tax purposes. But if you are indeed in the market for a new car, it might very well be a good idea. And the reason for that is there's 100% bonus depreciation in section 179 that depending on how much you use the car for business as a real estate agent, for the most part, I'd imagine you'd be driving back and forth, meeting with clients, uh, looking at houses, bringing them to open houses, all that stuff. 
you most likely use it more than 50% for business. When you use the car more than 50% for business, you can deduct that business portion in the first year that you purchase it, depending on whether or not you have a passenger or a truck, for instance. So if the car basically, let me break this down. If the car weighs over 6,000 pounds, you can deduct the business portion of it in the first year of ownership. So for example, let's just say you were to buy a Porsche, right? For $80,000 of Porsche crossover, and you used it 70% for business and it weighed over, remember, 6,000 pounds, you would be able to deduct $56,000 of that cost in the first year. However, if that vehicle weighed less than 6,000 pounds, let's just take a car like standard Mercedes or Honda Civic, the maximum you'd be able to deduct in that first year is 18,000. The rest would be depreciated over the next few years. So that's the first part of the question. The second part is, should you use cash or payments? Well, that really depends on how you want to finance it. It really does not matter in this instance. If you do use financing for that vehicle, you can deduct the interest under the actual expense method, which is the method you would have to use if you go this route. And and kind of talking about that too. So a question that I always used to see and, and still see is if I finance the vehicle, can I still deduct the purchase price or the business allocation to the purchase price? Yeah, well, I get the same question all the time from clients, and the answer is yes. Uh, the financing behind it does not really come into play there. So you're telling me, Tom, that if I have really great credit and I buy a Porsche, what did you call it? Porsche what? I just call it a crossover. I don't know. The, the crossover. Okay. The, the, the SUV Porsche, though. We are clarifying that we're buying yes. the SUV. Yes. Okay. So I buy the, the SUV Porsche. I spend $80,000. I finance it, though, and I put maybe 20000 down. You're telling me that I can put 20000 down but get a $56,000 tax write-off? Absolutely. And if I use it 100% for business, I can get an $80,000 tax write-off? Yeah. yeah but you know, that actually brings me into another another good portion of what you could do here is if you purchase that vehicle towards year end, right? You place in the service, basically you drive it only for business purposes. Let's just say from December 20th to December 31st of the year, you effectively use it 100% for business purposes. You now get the full 80% write-off. And then for the next four years, you just have to use it at least 50% for business and you don't have to recapture that initial write-off. So Fascinating. So you're telling me that if I buy a car at the end of the year, use it 100% for business use, then I can deduct 100%. So what you're telling me to do is that I should gift myself for Christmas a, a Porsche crossover. Hey, whatever, whatever you, you need. Smart to, guy. Yeah, smart what, guy. Yeah, whatever you need to do to get it across to your spouse, you know, you, <laughs> you can do it. You <laughs> there you go. That's the hang up, right? That's yeah. the hang up. <laughs> love it. Love it. All right. Good stuff. All right, so that is the Q&A segment of today's podcast. I want to thank everybody for joining us. And remember, if you want us to answer your questions, head over to www.therealestatecpa.com slash podcasts with an S and submit your question in the box and we may just answer it here on the podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.